Stay tuned now for a special local infectious disease update with Dr. Drew Colfax. Bad news on the newspaper, bad news on the elevator, bad news on the street, bad news on my car. And good morning. This is Alicia Bales live in the Talmadge studio and on the Zoom with us is Dr. Drew Colfax. Hey, Drew. Good morning. Good morning. Music we hoped we'd never hear again. Uh, I'm sure... I'm sure our listeners appreciate it greatly. <laughs> the, yeah. the break from not having to hear bad news. Yeah. But it turns out we have uh, not just COVID, but influenza and something called RSV that is slamming the county. And you've been working double, triple and quadruple shifts. So we're back to talk about what's happening in the ERs and with our health situation in the county and give people a chance to call in. And the call in number is 707 707- Eight nine five two four four eight. That's seven zero seven eight nine five two four four eight. We'll be opening up the phone lines as soon as we give the update. So what's happening, Drew? Well, we are in the midst of a triple demic, if you will, uh, and so actually, COVID, uh, my beloved virus, is. Uh, really sort of not driving the number so much as influenza and RSV. Uh, and locally, our, our volume, our, our infectious rate, our contagiousness is quite high. Um, and we're seeing really record-setting numbers of people um, testing positive for uh, particularly influenza A and RSV. Uh, we're seeing record volumes in the ER, uh, which is really sort of driving a lot of chaos and confusion. And then more regionally, uh, we, you know, particularly in the pediatric population, hospitals are full, um, completely full. And that is translating into sort of the dreaded, we don't have any beds anywhere type of scenario, even for sick kids. Um, and so as, as a practitioner, we've been, as practitioners, we've been having to transfer people as far away as Southern California or out of state um, because there are no pediatric um, hospital beds available uh, anywhere in Northern California, primarily driven by this RSV um, virus, which is a, like COVID, like flu, it's an RNA virus, single-stranded RNA virus, tends to occur every year um really has sort of a bimodal um effect which is to say it affects the very young and the very elderly um and for for everybody on you know between the ages of two and say 65 it it just causes sort of a fairly mild cold um but it is it is a very dangerous disease for for the elderly as well as for the very young um and you know we've been seeing a lot of sick kids with rsv now we've been seeing Additionally, just a lot of miserable people with flu. Um, and so, you know, the flu season has started much earlier than usual. And whether that means we're going to get through the peak of the flu curve earlier than typical, or whether this is going to be a long, flat, fairly high volume flu season that persists for, you know, weeks to months, we don't know. Um, traditionally, flu peaks um late december uh through march um so this has started you know really actually about 
three to four weeks ago and has persisted driving very high numbers of, of sick people coming to attention in the ER with you know the flu-like symptoms, fevers, cough, aches, myalgias, uh, the, the panoply of things that makes people feel pretty miserable. So um, I'm sorry, I've been suffering from one of these diseases. I'm not sure which. So uh, you can hear in, in my voice and I've been having to like pot down to, to cough. It's it just goes on and on and on with the coughing and the like all night long coughing and um, but it's, I don't, I know I don't have COVID, but, uh, it, it is definitely one of these things, but I'm just wondering, I mean, I've never felt sick enough to go to the ER. What is, what are the symptoms that are driving people to visit you at the hospital? Well, it's funny, right? I mean, we've lived, you know, last year and actually the year before we really didn't as, as ER doctors, we really didn't see any, um, any flu at all, uh, honestly, almost none, um, and very low levels of RSV. And so I think particularly parents uh, haven't really sort of been acclimatized to having a hot little kid. Um, and so that's bringing in, you know, par- concerned parents with a kid with a fever of 102, 103, 104, and they want to be evaluated and they want to be checked, which is totally reasonable. It just has been driving you know, for example, the the volumes in Ukiah, a busy day in Ukiah is typically about 90, 95, or if we go over 100, that's considered a very busy day, 100 patients in 24 hours. Um, we've been seeing volumes of 140 um, in the last week or two. And so, you know, that is, that's a lot. Um, it's fortunately not the case that there's a lot of acutely ill people or more acutely ill people, but the volume alone just creates um, a very busy environment. Um, So if you come to the ER and we're happy to see you, just be patient. Um, There's there's a triage process for a reason, Um, but I guess part of the educational component is it's okay to treat fevers at home, right? And it's okay to give your child Tylenol. It's usually okay to give your child ibuprofen and treat the fever, keep a close eye on the kid. Come to the ER if you're concerned. We will see your kid, obviously, but it does translate to, unfortunately, some longer wait times just because our healthcare delivery system is not built out to see that many patients um, that quickly. It's just there are rate limiting steps that um, just make it very difficult to move, you know, to ramp up um, patient visits. What's a better option for people um, if their kids have a fever and they're super worried? Is there is there a system that is built for this kind of thing? Well, you know, there's the nursing line. So most insurance providers provide a nursing sort of line. Unfortunately, that usually results in the advice that you go to the ER for immediate evaluation. <laughs> um, but then the other the other option, of course, is to just go to your your your, your provider, right? So you're, um, you know, whether it's a, at a clinic or one of the uh, federally qualified health centers um, in the county, you know, they are typically maintaining um, emergency visit hours for people um, every day they're, they too are busy. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes that results in the advice to go to the ER, which is why we're there, right? I mean, that's why ERs are there. We're the sort of final common uh, resource uh, for, you know, for parents and for patients. Um, but I would certainly encourage people to reach out to primary providers first, um, to reach out to the clinic or the pediatrician first to see if they can be checked. Because most of these 
most of these kids in particular, unless they're under the age of two, um, really just need somebody to listen to their lungs and check their vital signs and a conversation to educate parents about fever control and expectant management. Uh, and that's, that's all that's needed typically. Now, not always, which is why we can never tell people to not come to the ER with a febrile kid, but 95% of the time, that's, that's all that's needed. We don't even necessarily need to test for influenza or COVID or RSV because they're all viruses at this point. We have COVID. We're not trying to isolate or quarantine COVID in any way anymore, um, at least not as, a, as an overarching policy. And so if your kid is sick, if you're sick, stay at home, stay away from people until all your symptoms resolve. Um, that's, you know, that's the advice that needs to be followed, uh, regardless of which of these three illnesses it may be although honestly and particularly in your personal case it might be one of the you know 15 or 20 other viral illnesses that are circulating at any point uh so it's it doesn't change management i guess is is the primary point okay so i might not have the designer the designer rsv virus i might just have whatever is floating around although what i've heard and what i've observed is a lot of people are sick and um they i've I've even heard that we have absentee rates at least on the coast in schools of hovering around 50 percent, which is hard to believe but sort of squares with what you're saying yeah, no, the, the, the rate of transmission is extremely high right now. Um, we, we haven't really experienced this for two years. Um, masks are down. Schools are back in session. We're all gathering. We're all shopping. We're all doing things without masks, by and large. And that's just driving a very high um, surge, which is you know much more intense than anything uh, we saw, but for the very worst month or two of the various peaks of the COVID surge. And even then, we're seeing more people presenting to attention in the ERs uh, because I think part of the outreach that we did during COVID was stay away unless you're really sick. And there really hasn't been that outreach this time around. So people are coming in to be checked, uh, whether you're a 22 year old with a fever and you feel like, you know, crud um, or whether you're a worried parent. And, you know, that's, that's understandable. Well, there just hasn't been a lot of sort of community outreach saying, stay home with your illness. Don't come to the attention because we are really concerned about being overwhelmed or swamped. To be sure, we're not, you know, it's not dangerous. It's just a bit slower in the ERs right now. We're not seeing a lot of, we're not being crushed with critically ill people um, that we can't manage. It just means that if there's a hot little kid in the waiting room, um, it might be an hour or two or three um, before um, the provider is able to see that kid, which sounds like a long wait, but compared to um, tertiary hospitals in big cities, you know, a wait time of 10 to 12 hours to be seen is not unusual in an ER. You know, I rotated through Charity Hospital in New Orleans where I would see people had been waiting for 24 hours to be seen. Not, not, not a laudable goal, but it does provide uh, at least a point of comparison as to how fortunate people are in terms of the way they can access fairly rapid um, emergency care in this county. Wow, that's stunning. Um, can we talk about the symptoms of these three and when to feel fairly okay that you just have a, a mild version of this or when to feel like maybe there is reason for concern to come to the ER? Yeah, so the symptoms are actually fairly similar. I mean, I think most people at this point are pretty familiar with the notion of what the the constellation of COVID symptoms is. Um, but all three are 
typically going to cause fevers, fatigue. Uh, some component of a respiratory ailment is almost always seen with all three of these. And when I say all three, I'm talking about influenza, COVID, and RSV. RSV tends to be more mild, as I mentioned, except at the extremes of age. Uh, influenza what tends does RSV to- stand for? Respiratory syncytial virus. Syncytial um, virus. A, it's a it's a single stranded mRNA uh, vaccine. Uh, sorry, virus that doesn't actually um, mutate that much. So it tends to have the same characteristics every single year. We tend to build up immunity to it because we're exposed to it typically every single year. The very young, so under the age of one, tend to be the people who get can, can get fairly sick from this and require supplemental oxygen or breathing treatments or just medical support during the viral phase. There is not a vaccine for it yet, although that is coming very soon. Um, and so it's really just supportive care, which is, is it, to say... I'm sorry, is it new? <laughs> I've never heard of this before. Not new at all, and it's... You know, it, it, it's one of these viral illnesses that uh, that has been around forever. Um, it doesn't typically get named until, you know, until more recently where we now have a swab and you can say, oh, yes, this is RSV. Um, and, you know, in our department, we have a swab that tests for influenza A, B, COVID and RSV. That's one swab that we have. We also have a you know, a multi-thousand dollar swab that tests for about 20, I think it's 22 different viral, primarily viral illnesses. They're not all that useful, honestly, unless unless they're going to change clinical management. So if I have a happy, you know, hot little kid with a viral sort of syndrome, it doesn't change what I'm going to tell all the parents, right? Take the kid home. Yes, he's contagious. Yes, he can't go to school. Ibuprofen, Tylenol, keep a close eye on him. If his belly starts to look like it's helping him breathe, bring him right back and we'll reassess kind of kind of conversation. Um, but it's been around. It just hasn't necessarily been named with as, as high of a degree of precision because mm-hmm. we now have a swab that can say, yes, your kid has RSV. So it's now, basically like a bad cold. It is a bad cold for most of us. And in fact, for most of us, it's a mild cold. Um, it's not benign. It kills, you know, I think about 300 kids a year um, nationwide. So it's not a benign illness to be sure, but the vast majority of children who are severely affected by it are under the age of one. And then the very elderly um, also, it's it's actually, I believe it drives about 10,000 deaths a year amongst the very elderly. So wow. not benign. Um, but not on par with COVID, which, you know, even now we don't, you know, it's sort of dropped into the background noise, but we're on track to have 100,000 nationwide COVID deaths annually. Um, and that's sort of what our numbers have been for several months now. So, you know, COVID still remains probably 10 times more deadly um, nationwide than RSV. Uh, influenza is typically somewhere in between that, but it usually drives about ten to 25,000 nationwide deaths uh, per season. So you do think there's a connection between the fact that we've been masking and isolating for the last two years and this surge that we're seeing now of all three of these viral illnesses? It's hard to it's hard to really tease it out. Um, obviously, masks are down, and we're back and gathering with, with one another. Um, you know, anecdotally, um, you know, I've 
equipped with providers that, you know, you can isolate as long as you want, but kids are going to get a total number of viral illnesses in their childhood, regardless of timing. And so there's, you know, it, it feels like we're catching up, uh, making up on our viral illness deficit, if you will, um, particularly in the last month or two. Okay, let's talk a little bit about transmission. I, I realize that preventing transmission is probably the same for all of them, which is wear your mask and wash your hands and stay home if you're sick kind of stuff. But why don't you talk more about how, how people catch this stuff and why it's burning through our community so strongly? Yeah, it really is. I mean, they are all primarily um, transmitted by respiratory uh, aerosols. So coughing, sneezing, uh, four mites to some extent for, you know, so surfaces, not for COVID, but for influenza um, is a mode of transmission. So hand washing is a little bit more helpful for flu. Um, staying away from others if you're symptomatic, doesn't matter which um, virus you may have or whether you even have ascribed a name to your illness is critical. Um, if you're febrile, if you're symptomatic in any way, you know, it's important to stay home, typically at least for 24 hours after resolution of symptoms. That's probably a good rule of thumb. Um, Ooh, but this one out. lasts for like weeks. Yeah, so when I say symptomatic, I mean, it's sort of the tail end of some of these viral syndromes can feel like they're dragging on forever. COVID is also like that for mm -hmm. an unfortunate minority of us. Uh, so it, it, the, the, the primary driver, the primary endpoint of a contagious illness such as this is the end of fevers. Um, that's a good sort of reference in terms of a hard stop. If you're still coughing, then wear a mask. You know, just be one of these people wearing a mask. I would encourage people if you don't want to get sick and you're going out and about, which is what we have to do, um, wear a mask. Uh, wear a mask during the surge. It would be a very prudent thing to sort of keep the mask handy again whenever you're going into um, public spaces over the next month or two, um, because the odds are quite high, particularly with these numbers, um, that somebody near you in one of these spaces is carrying one of these viruses. Um, and if you don't want it, if you don't want to get sick, uh, the best thing you can do if you're, you know, presuming that you are, in fact, going to enter one of these spaces, is to wear a mask and then, you know, sanitize either with hand sanitizer or wash your hands. What about vaccinations? Oh, yes. Um, so RSV, as I mentioned, does not have a vaccine. Um, we are seeing increased interest in the flu vaccine this year. The numbers were pretty low last year just because we've gone for two years without a flu season. And I think there was some you know, collective memory uh, lapse, that flu is something you really don't want to get because it makes you feel really terrible. Um, and so uh, the uptake of influenza vaccine this fall has actually improved a bit um, locally. That's not really completely corroborated by numbers, um, hard data, but just talking to clinics and centers around the county, that seems to be the case. The flu vaccines um, are identified, well, the, the strain, so flu changes every year, right? It, it mutates and there's a new strain that sort of becomes the worldwide predominant strain every, every winter or fall, as you, if you will. Um, and that has to be sort of guessed or surmised from preliminary data about six to eight months ahead of schedule. So there's a, there's a group of scientists that gather every year in Atlanta and they sort of you know, they meet and they discuss which one they think is going to be the worldwide uh, contender, if you will. 
Fortunately, um, the flu vaccine this year seems to be a very good match. So they got it right um, this year, which means that it's going to be a more effective vaccine um, compared to other years. Now, it doesn't prevent you from getting flu. It's not a, it's not a silver bullet, but what it does do is it, it greatly diminishes um, the severity of illness. It keeps the elderly out of hospitals. Um, it reduces mortality for the elderly, and it makes people much less symptomatic um, in a way that is quite beneficial. It also helps uh, diminish transmissibility, which is to say it helps shorten the duration of the season. And how can people get it? How can they get the vaccine? Yeah, uh, it's generally offered pretty pretty readily. I mean, most pharmacies, um, you know, offer the flu vaccine. It's very fast. It takes ten minutes, maybe. Um, at just about any pharmacy around the county, all of the federally qualified health centers offer vaccines. They usually have a walk up day. You can call and ask which day. They'll meet you outside and they'll give you the shot. Um, and that's that's pretty pretty readily accessible, really throughout the county. All right, so it's easy to get and well worth it. Um, should we open up the phone lines, Drew? Sure, why not? Okay, so this is we've uh, this is the local infectious disease update because that's a mouthful. I know uh, we need an acronym um, because there are three viral infections that are ripping through the county and keeping kids home from school, and um, not just COVID, but we have influenza and something called RSV, which we're all very familiar with, although maybe not that name. Um, and so we brought Dr. Colfax back to give us an update about what was go- what's going on, because he's working in the ER, and there are tons and tons of people visiting the ER right now. So we thought it'd be a good idea to, to give an update and open up the phone lines for your questions. So the phone number here in the studio is 707-895- 2448. That's 707-895-2448. And look at that. We have a caller. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Yes. Um, I had RSV about three years ago, and I wondered, do you develop an immunity to it at all after having had it? Yes, you do. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's not unusual. Um, to develop RSV, it's kind of surprising that you actually knew that it was RSV, uh, honestly. Um, but you, presumably you were tested. I had the swab. They, they swabbed my nose. Yeah, and, and, so, and, that, that and that's, yeah. You know, that's the way you find it. Um, hopefully you were not sick, and it probably really didn't change management too much. But you do well, develop immunity. I was really you, sick, but <laughs> I was really sick, but that's why I don't want to get it again. And I wondered if I'd had developed immunity as a result of having had it. So, short answer, you have partial immunity, uh, which is to say you can still get it again, but it's unlikely to make you as sick the next time around. And just to be clear, I'm not saying you didn't feel miserable, but I guess the question would be really whether you're hospitalized with RSV pneumonia or not. Um, That would be, as a practitioner, that would be sort of my working standard of what I mean when I say really sick. You know, they probably swabbed right. your nose. They told you, you know, a little while later that you had RSV, and then you stayed home miserable, you know, from anywhere from five to seven days. That's typically the arc uh, of an RSV. almost <laughs> three weeks. <laughs> so that's, that's unusual. It, uh, so that's unusual. Uh-huh. Well, I've heard that it's the one that's going around now is something like that, that people are complaining about having it for two to three weeks and being miserable. So I was 
thinking, you know, I don't want to do this again. So good. I can Thank second you that. Definitely. It's been two to three weeks. Okay. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Not okay, fun. Thanks okay, thanks Bye. for the call. Just to, be, just to be clear, though, it's also possible, particularly with these very high sort of prevalences of these infectious diseases right now, uh, it's also possible that we're stacking illnesses. Um, and it's not uncommon where I see a swab come back with RSV and flu. Um, and oh, so, man. You know, some, some people um, are just are doubling down with their viral infections in a way that makes it seem like it's dragging on. In general, RSV is a little bit hard to, harder to predict um, in terms of the duration of illness for adults uh, than for kids. Typically for kids, the peak day of illness, and I'm talking for young children, um, are days four, five, and maybe six. Um, and then there's a pretty sharp resolution of the illness. And that's because of the fever? Uh, fever, and it, it reaches, uh, it, it, it triggers what makes the kids sick from RSV is it causes a lot of respiratory inflammation in the airways. Um, and so it just starts to impede upon oxygenation and capacity to uh, breathe. Okay, so so that's you just mentioned RSV pneumonia, and I have the coughing is so awful and intense, and especially at night, um, really strong, painful at times, coughing. Um, and I'm wondering, yeah, about the relationship with pneumonia, and is there a moment where you realize this is something more than just a cough, and I need to be seen? So. Typically not, honestly. Um, you know, most, so a lot of people think of pneumonia as being a, a bacterial process, um, but viral pneumonias are more common um, overall. We don't have a great test for it um, as to, do, to distinguish them. And it's also, to, you know, to compound the problem, it's also possible to start with a viral illness and then get a, what we call a superimposed or a secondary bacterial pneumonia. That's possible. It tends to create a sort of different set of symptoms, which is to say the cough will suddenly start to become productive of, you know, pretty nasty sputum. Um, if it's just a dry, painful, persistent cough, particularly if it's worse at night, um, that suggests that this is still a viral type of syndrome that's just lingering. They do tend to get worse at night because you have a lot of upper airway inflammation, secretions, and when you lay down flat to sleep, it drains down your trachea and triggers the cough reflex. So when I hear people say, yeah, it's worse at night, take a decongestant, um, just an over-the-counter decongestant. That will typically help um, quiet the nighttime uh, coughing episodes a bit. What are some good safety decongestants? It, the the generic anything that says decongestant on your on your Safeway pharmacy shelf, I'm not going to you know pick one over the other. Uh, but they 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 are all quite safe in general. Um, there's some slight exceptions depending on what sort of medications you're on, but for the vast majority of people, they're they're quite safe indeed. Okay, and that should calm the nighttime coughing. It will help some. I'm not saying it's going to be a silver bullet, but it it, it will help some yes but if your cough changes in character and you start to you know run fevers again and you have green and yellow sputum and you feel like you're getting worse again then that might merit a visit to your practitioner um it may in fact then trigger a chest x-ray to look at it most of us can pretty much delink, uh, you know we're pretty good at distinguishing um a bacterial versus a viral type of pneumonia or pneumonitis so just the uh, the, the infl inflammation in the lungs that's pneumonia 
No, inflammation in the lungs is not necessarily pneumonia. Um, so pneumonia requires sort of an, an infiltrative process. And inflammation is a pretty um, broad term, right? So asthma, for example, is, has a component of an inflammatory component. Uh, 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 component um and so but that's obviously not pneumonia but it 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 can be it can be both right so a lot of a lot of the a lot of the respiratory symptoms can be simply due to inflammation um it could then also be a pneumonitis which is just an inflammation or it could develop into a viral pneumonia which tends to be fairly diffuse um you know covid for example i hadn't seen a covid chest x-ray you know up until two and a half years ago and now when we see an x-ray and um you know we we all know what covid looks like on chest x-ray at this point so what what happens with a pneumonia what's what's well, different it depends what kind it is right so if it's a viral pneumonia it, it's still just supportive care um and so that's that's really it just sounds so scary time. like what <laughs> yeah, so pneumonia is you know it's a leading cause of death you know for 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 adults and for for you know for the elderly and for children so it's, it's nothing to be ignored um but it is also you know readily treated for the vast majority of people and you know if antibiotics are indicated or if antibiotics are even thought about then that's a discussion that somebody should have with a provider but for the vast majority of people right now in this county this is all a viral process that's going around um and this is not something that's going to get better any faster on you know doxycycline or augmentin or some of these strong antibiotics that we have readily available that are very effective for bacterial processes but completely useless against influenza or rsv or COVID. um and so you know that distinction that um educating people around that um distinction is part of the outreach that needs to occur by healthcare providers everywhere the good thing is the last you know one of the small silver linings of covid is it educated the heck out of everybody about what a virus is right and the fact that antibiotics don't work for viruses so you know three years ago pre-covid there was persistent confusion around that point when i would tell somebody that they had a virus and like so can i get some antibiotics and you know then you had to have that conversation how antibiotics don't help now people are like oh it's a virus so antibiotics don't work right but still, we're all miserable going to the ER. People want us to do something, and it's not terribly gratifying saying, yeah, you have a virus, go home, take ibuprofen and Tylenol. But unfortunately, that's the best thing that we have to offer for people with viruses besides sort of the front-end vaccine um, you know, regimen that, that's available. All right, we have another call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, so it, it sounds like it's time for people that have most people have dropped their mask to maybe mask up again i personally tend to be that guy that is over there with the mask on and so i still carry and use masks but uh i'm reminded you know with with alicia talking about having this cough and and and, and all of when i used to work at places like kzyx and I had coworkers who just felt like their jobs were so important they they couldn't stay home when they were sick, and so they got other people sick. And uh, even back then, in the early part of the century, I was washing my hands once an hour or more if I was using on-air stuff and things, and avoiding getting sick as much as possible. But when I got sick, I got really sick. So I'm wondering uh, regarding RSV and and these others. 
about asthmatics since you brought it up is the chance of getting it worse or or lessened by the fact that you have asthma already have a condition that that changes the way you breathe and are you more or less susceptible and are there possibly worse odds regarding outcome for people that are asthmatic yeah that's a great so great point and good question um the to 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 reiterate your point, yes, this is a time to mask up and sort of use sort of the precautions that we became very familiarized with at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I unfortunately don't think that there's going to be a massive policy push in this regard from the government, um, either state, federal, or local levels, just because there's so much politicalization around the issue and there's so much fatigue um, amongst the population. But certainly on a personal level, um, I would encourage anybody who doesn't want to get sick to do exactly what you described, which is to say mask up, wash your hands, stay home, stay away from others um, if you're sick, and you know do the things that we know work to help prevent transmission. And then secondly, your question about asthmatics. So asthmatics in particular or in general are not more susceptible um to contracting the illness um but they are certainly uh, more likely to get a more severe form of an illness once it's contracted so particularly in kids um or in um adults with severe moderate to severe asthma, they tend to get sicker with these viral illnesses, and they may require steroids or oxygen or breathing treatments in a way that a non-asthmatic um, would not. The same goes for you know COPDers, you know people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease tends to concentrate amongst smokers or former smokers. They are certainly at increased risk of getting a more severe uh, form of this of these illnesses. And the same, the same applies for people who are immune suppressed or they're very elderly. And as I mentioned, they're very young. All of these individuals um, are in general more likely to get more sick with the asterisk still being uh, the very young seem to just shrug COVID off on the whole. Um, it just doesn't seem to make uh, young children particularly sick um, with very few exceptions. So. So regarding uh, the use of steroids and uh, you know, asthmatics, uh, many people, most people in the society that have asthma and are being treated for it or, or see a doctor for it, uh, use steroidal inhalers and have albuterol as a rescue around. And is there, I mean, I know that uh, some doctors will say, take this money, inhales twice a day, and other doctors uh, will say things like, well, take one to four twice a day. Be sure to take it twice a day, but you don't have to take it, you know, twice, two two puffs twice a day. Like I put on the label, if you feel like you don't need it, you can take one, or if you feel like you need more, you can take four. So uh, having said that and having heard what you said about asthmatics, I guess if somebody's uh, starting to feel something in their lungs, they might take the option of going to the higher limit of, of take four uh puffs twice a day or even more if they're feeling really sick yes and you know the the caution there is of course you know if you're if you're reaching for your inhaler either your rescue inhaler um or your once or twice daily you know inhaled steroid um a lot um then that's probably a scenario where you need to 
be seen or at least talk to your provider because asthma can get really scary really fast. And if, if you're using your rescue inhaler every hour um, to pick a number, uh, then that, that should, certainly should drive one to medical attention. Because at that point, you might need sort of the more potent um, sustained nebulizer treatments that we can do in a healthcare setting. You may need to be on systemic steroids. There are a lot of other things we can do. Uh, you know, there are a few things as scary as somebody who is in a severe asthma exacerbation, you know, and you learn, you know, sort of retroactively that they've been using their rescue inhaler every 20 minutes for the last 24 hours. Um, so if, if things are tipping sideways, particularly for asthmatics, then, you know, call your doctor or come to the ER, certainly. All right. Thanks for that call. And this is Alicia Bales live in the Talmadge studio all by myself, totally isolated. Dr. Colfax is on the Zoom uh, from points unknown for the holiday week. So thanks, Drew, for for zooming in um, during the Thanksgiving holiday week. Really appreciate it. And we are giving my pleasure. And we are giving a local infectious disease update. Yes, we are ambitious and we've expanded beyond COVID to include influenza and RSV, which are filling up our ERs in the county, uh, all three of our ERs in record numbers. And we have another caller on the line. Ah, the call-in number is 707-895-2448, 707-895-2448. The lines are open for your calls and questions. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Thank you. I was wishing that we would have a have a uh, talk, you know, locally like we had last year. I've got this thing, whatever it is, it's going around. I've had it for about a week, and I'm coughing and coughing and coughing. But you know what? I'm a mother. I'm a grandma, and I let myself get sick about every five years. I will actually let myself get a cold and clean my system out and cough and get it rid of it and get all that phlegm out. And we're sitting on California Bay laurel which grows along the creeks, and it is medicine plant. According to the Cotto people, they call it medicine leaf. And I go to uh, the creeks, and I will pick 10, 20 leaves and bring them home, and I will boil tea with two or three leaves and drink that, and it keeps it, it's an expectorant. It keeps all that upper respiratory loose so that you can breathe. You know, if you get clogged up, and, and uh, it, it, it helps to loosen it up. All and right. Color, do you have a question? Well, I, I think we're, we're sitting on yarrow, and uh, which is another medicine plant that grows here in the valley. Uh, if you know what yarrow is, it's a white plant, white flower, and it's good for upper respiratory. Yep. Mullen, mullen are, are teas, medicine leaf teas that we have in our in our region that you can make teas of. And go ahead and get sick. And just rest All right. And Thanks for the comments, caller. Dr. Kovex, do you have any feedback on natural remedies? I, you know, it's obviously outside of my area of expertise. Um, you know, some of these do make people feel better, and the vast majority are, you know, at worst harmless. Um, and so, you know, use them. Certainly, I don't, I don't advocate for them, and nor do I recommend them. But I don't really have a reason to suggest that you don't. I will say I don't think it's in general a good idea to let oneself get sick every three to four or five years in, in any sort of intentional way. Um, you know, that's that's not necessary, and it's not really cleaning out one's system in any type of way. I am going to 
scoff at any notion of purging or you know excreting all these toxins from one body from any form whatsoever um illnesses come and go our bodies fight them off and then we recover from them typically um and so yeah i i, I urge caution there I, one thing i do want to talk about before we get further into calls is you know we still do have some um treatments in general that should you know people need to be aware of um and in particular for covid um you know it still behooves particularly the cohort of people over our lower the age all the way down to my age so 50 and up um if you have a viral illness you, one should consider going on this medicine called paxlovid it's quite effective at um preventing hospitalization severe illness and death and so yeah if there's a fever and a cough and you're over the age of 50 or you're immune suppressed then this medication is quite effective it's readily available it needs to be started within five days of the onset of symptoms um and if so then it is um a great medication and so it, it's something that we use um, quite regularly um to help minimize the risk of covid hospitalization which is in part why we have so few people hospitalized in this county even though you know we're picking up probably you know officially five but unofficially probably 50 COVID cases a day in this county wow. um, just because we're not really testing and reporting the way we were initially. All right. And that's just for COVID, right? Just for COVID. Now, there is also a medication that's been around forever called Tamiflu, or that's the, that's the trade name of it, um, which helps shorten the illness of influenza. I'm not necessarily a big advocate for it. It's only minimally or moderately effective. It has to be started within 48 hours to be at all effective. Um, and so typically people don't present within the window to initiate it. There were um, some very good indications for it during the H1N1 swine flu um, influenza um, pandemic of 2009 so we wanted to test kids early in that illness because we wanted to start them on it this is not you know the the, the strain of influenza a and b that we're experiencing right now is not driving that degree of severe illness but that is also available um in general it's not going to be available to most people coming to the er because they're not coming to the er until they get really sick which is typically going to be days three to five all right the lines are lighten up let's go ahead and take a call good morning caller you're live on the air good morning go ahead and turn your radio off we can hear it in the yeah, background. I'm, I'm looking for the button <laughs> okay. okay sorry okay so i'm one of those uh People like the earlier caller, Burton, you know, who always wears a mask, never dines out. Um, and I got COVID um, last last weekend, and I had to go to the ER because my symptoms were so severe. And I just want to put in a plug for Paxlovid because I started Paxlovid on Sunday, and uh, within about 24 hours, my fever started dropping. And even though I'm still in pretty bad shape, I do feel like it has helped. Uh, I have two questions. One is, um, does the fact that you have long COVID, which I've had for two and a half years, does it make me more predisposed to feel worse when I do get COVID? Uh, and also, could it make long COVID worse? And also, is it going to make me more predisposed to catching some of the other stuff that's floating around now? 
Yeah, so good questions, and I appreciate your plug for Paxlovid. Um, you know, long COVID is so poorly understood at this point that it's 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 speculation at best to predict how it may interact with a recurrent uh, COVID illness. I think it's safe to say that most um, providers and researchers around this are not going to um, suggest that long COVID makes you more susceptible to an additional COVID illness. I also think that ultimately, although this is an open question to be sure, um, that a recurrent COVID illness is not going to exacerbate long COVID symptoms. Um, it, it's equally plausible that it could actually trigger some sort of immune response and shorten uh, long COVID symptoms as much as it would prolong it. So open question. Um, but in terms of it making you more vulnerable to recurrent um, COVID infections or even other infections, no, we're not really seeing that uh, in a way that uh, plays out in any significant degree. All right. Thanks for the question, caller. We have another call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. That's you. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Um, God, it's good to hear you, too. Go at it again. Thank you. Um, I had a question um, regarding the Paxlovid. And um, what is the mechanism of action that's helping so many people out? And I'll hang up and listen on the air now. I'm sorry, the mechanism of Paxlovid? Or? Yeah, how does it work? It, it blocks viral replication. Um, like and how? So it- <laughs> <laughs> it might be it might be obvious to you. I'm sure you can summarize it. You're good at that. Yeah. Uh, boy, so yeah, it it, it really it works at the um at the level of the um viral attachment points and it prevents it from entering the cell and infecting the cells and re- and replicating within the body. Um and so it's a combination of two different drugs. It tends to be very safe um, in terms of its profile. The main concern is somebody who prescribes it or as somebody who, yes, went on it, um, what is the drug-drug interactions because it can interact with other drugs. Um, and so one has to be careful around that. Um, some of these drugs people cannot go off of, um, and so Paxlovid is just not a good medication for them. Um, other drugs people can go off of and go on Paxlovid and then resume um, resume their regular regimen of medications. Additionally, it can have some renal uh, effect, and so it needs to be adjusted for people with uh, chronic kidney disease. Easily done, but something to be aware of if you're somebody that has impaired renal function. So not something you want to run down to the drugstore and just get a bottle and start taking? No, I mean, it's something that you definitely need to, you know, have a discussion with your medical provider about. Um, it's, you know, as I will point out time and time again, no drugs are completely benign. Um, and, you know, it's always a question of weighing benefit versus risk. You know, I've had this discussion ad nauseum around vaccines. Yes, they're not completely benign, but boy, benefit versus risk uh, right. for any of the vaccines that's out there is is a pretty easy equation. How right? much how much intervention you have to endure versus getting a shot? Yes. Okay. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. If it is I, then my question is: um, It is you. Paxlovid rebound. I have no point of view. I have just heard anecdotally about this. 
Is this something to have concern about? What actually is it? How frequently does it happen? Et cetera, et cetera. I've heard good things about Paxlovid, but that's the only kind of bad thing. Can you speak to that? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, sure. It's a it's a it's a real phenomena, um, and it's it's more prevalent than I think any of us would like to. What is it? Uh, so you take the Paxlovid. It's five day course of medication. Um, you finish it. Paxlovid really stops the virus from replicating, and so as that previous caller referenced, it makes you feel better kind of miraculously after about 24 hours after your first dose. Um, it, you know, it just takes the illness away because it stops the virus pretty much dead in its tracks. The problem is the virus is not completely dead, um, and you finish the five-day course, and then the virus starts to replicate again, and you have a rebound COVID illness. You can even test negative while you're on the Paxlovid and then test positive again. Very, very annoying uh, for the, you know, 20%, perhaps, maybe even 30% of people who have Paxlovid rebound. The good news is um, the people with Paxlovid rebound aren't getting severe COVID. Um, They're getting sort of a mild case of COVID that's making them feel cruddy again when you felt like you were better. Um, it's as far as I know, they're not good predictors as to who gets it and who doesn't. Um, I know multiple people who have had the rebound and have you know bemoaned it, um, but the majority of people don't. Um, it's not a huge majority, but the majority of people take the Paxlovid, it ends their illness, and then they are miraculously better. They go on with their lives. Yes. All right, interesting. Let's take another call. Good morning, caller. You are live on the air. Oh, hello. Hello. You should turn your radio down. That is you. Hello, caller. Hello. Um, Am I on the air? You are live on the air. Oh, thank you. Um, I've had symptoms of flu for maybe five days now, off and on. And I want to meet up with my family, and I'm wondering if I am still infectious. And I tested for COVID negative for that. Um, So if you could give me some kind of answer for that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, it's a fraught question as we go into the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, The, you know, five days of most illnesses, you're going to be past the peak infectious portion. Um, Most of these viral illnesses, flu, COVID, um, RSV, bronchiolitis, um, all are most transmissible from about 12 to 24 hours before the onset of symptoms uh, up into about 72 hours of uh, the illness. And that's when you're really shedding the highest uh, level of the virus. Are you completely non-infectious at this point? I don't know. Um, at five days of illness and you're getting together, say, on Thanksgiving and today is Tuesday, that risk is probably fairly well contained um, with, you know, vis-a-vis the people that you'd be getting together with. But I would, you know, you, you would want to have this discussion uh, with family members because it's not a zero risk. You might mitigate, mitigate it by wearing a mask um it's hard to have thanksgiving dinner wearing a mask obviously but um day seven of most of these illnesses you're going to have a fairly low risk of transmitting it to others and that's presuming of course that you had 
at least you know 48 hours of no fevers um a cough and congestion sort of lingering um day seven that's probably a pretty low rate of transmissibility risk okay well thank you um i don't seem to have had a fever it's just been someday i feel fine and then it comes back again with a sore throat and um stuffed up a bit but um Okay, well, I'll, I'll take that in, in mind. And, uh... the, the frustrating thing is there's really no um, good test or way to ascertain whether you are um, infectious or contagious at this point. There's just not a test or a metric or an exam finding that a provider could um, render to tell you definitively, yes, it's safe, no, it's not. It's a, it's a risk. It's a risk assessment that you and your friends and family need to make. It's obviously risky to be getting together at all right now during this triple um, surge that we're seeing. Um, and, you know, we're going to see higher numbers after we come through this holiday weekend. We just will uh, because people are going to be getting together. They're going to be indoors and they're going to be sharing everything that's in their lungs. Yep. Let's take one last call, but I wonder, is there anything we can do around the Thanksgiving table? Like, does distancing work for these? Does eating outdoors, if weather permits, um, what what could help if you are getting together? Distancing indoors is not going to help much, honestly. Um, eating outdoors will mitigate the risk to some extent. It worked quite well early on in the COVID illness, but these new strains are so... Um, readily transmitted that I think the efficacy or the protection afforded by an outdoor event has actually been attenuated a bit. Um, yeah, if, if you're, if you're elderly, if you're immune suppressed, um, this unfortunately might be a holiday that you might want to give a pass on or have a sort of more limited cohort of people. Um, you can certainly, you know, test everybody for COVID, um, beforehand. The tests are readily available and cheap, if not free. Uh, that would eliminate one of these illnesses. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that asymptomatic people need to be tested for flu, um, before any holiday gathering. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, there, there are discussions that need to be had amongst all family members as to what, what our risk comfort level is. Right. And I'm that includes with, Babies under two, right? The, the, they're particularly at risk for RSV. Correct. Babies, you know, really infants under the age of one are at the greatest risk, but under two as well. Um, you know, you don't want a bunch of people gathering with an eight-month-old infant um, if, if several people have sort of the crud, if you will. Um, you know, that's just perhaps <laughs> a good time to, to not get together with an infant during this RSV surge, particularly... Since, you know, if, if that child, unfortunately, were to become severely symptomatic, there aren't any hospital beds um, available to take care of really sick infants right now. They're just not. And so it's a good time to keep your kids safe. Okay, well, I think that's going to do it. We've got just a couple minutes left. So let's go ahead and recap a little bit. Um, this is the this is Alicia Bells and Dr. Drew Colfax. We're calling it the Local Infectious Disease Report. Uh, we've expanded on from COVID to these other viruses that seem to be really hitting the county hard. Um, and the uh, ERs are seeing, a, it sounds like, uh, 140 people a day in a 24-hour period, which is a whole lot. Um, and that's in not just the Ukiah ER, but also high numbers of visits in Fort Bragg and in Willits. And a lot of kids out of school, a lot of absentee uh, 
a lot of absences from classrooms and and so any last words in our last two minutes here for folks about how to how to think about this what to do and how to keep yourself safe I, I think it really goes back to the basics, right? I mean, it, it's not that complicated to avoid getting an infection or transmit an infection. And so I, I'm asking really everybody to be thoughtful, to stay away from others if you're symptomatic. Um, it'd be a great time to wear a mask and take the sort of basic viral protective steps that we all know uh, for the next week or two. Um, talk to your local providers before you come to the ER. Grid yourself for really chaotic ER experience um, and, you know, be safe. A lot of these illnesses can be treated, which is over-the-counter medications for the vast majority of us, particularly for anybody who's not at the extremes of age. Um, and we're not actually seeing that many people getting critically ill from any of these illnesses. So don't freak out. This is not, you know, this is not COVID January 2020, right? We're not, we're not worrying about running out of ventilators right now. We're just trying to keep the symptomatic burden minimized in the community. Just no, there's just no beds anywhere in the region because there's so, so many people coming through. Correct. Correct. All right. Well, Drew, thanks so much for calling in from your vacation. <laughs> we should do this again sometime. Um, when? <laughs> next year <laughs> well let's hope that the that the uh tsunami of cases goes you know starts to get better do you expect it to to wrap up or do you think we're we're still on the upswing here i i think it should i can't imagine it swinging any higher frankly so i expect we're going to start seeing a downward curve over the next week to two it might stay fairly flat at a high level for four to five weeks but i'm really hoping we don't see that all right. Well, on that note, let's keep our fingers crossed and hopefully we won't be talking very, very soon. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank Happy you, Thanksgiving, Alicia. Drew. Thank you, okay. Thank you, callers. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.